The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. But we'll carry on uh, with our next speaker, and uh, it's our second veteran of the morning, and um, I'd like to introduce Mr. Philip Stewart, who flew Spitfires during World War II. Well, I've been asked to speak about uh, my experiences during the war. And uh, recently, somebody said to me, when you learned that we were at war with Germany, what were your feelings? Well, I don't remember any specific feelings, except that I took it for granted uh, that myself and my three older brothers would be going away. And uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if at least two of us could go away together. Um, my second oldest brother was already uh, an officer in the medical corps, so he was called up straight away. Uh, my oldest brother was recently married and uh, his wife had lost both of her parents and she had two uh, smaller sisters to look after, so uh, it was taken for granted that he perhaps should wait a while. He did eventually go into the army. Um, but the other brother next to me, uh, he and I both decided we wanted to go into the Air Force. So we put our names down. Uh, unfortunately, Colin failed the medical because he was colorblind. So they put him in the artillery, which I would have thought was far more important. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way things went. So uh, it took a little while um, to sort this out. And uh, then I was working in Christchurch, uh, but a friend of mine, Dun uh, Duncan McAlpine, uh, rang me and said, um, could you give up your job and come and help me? I've got to run spy. My brother Jim is a captain in the territorials and he's already been called up. And uh, I've got my own farm also to run. So I was quite happy to do that. And uh, we were told then, and he had got his name down also to go into the Air Force. Um, so we were told that it would be about 10 months before we would be called up to Levin. And uh, just uh, digressing slightly is that that McAlpine family, 
there were three sons and one or two daughters. The eldest was the Honourable John McAlpine, who was an MP. Uh, he had Craigie Byrne. And then there was Jim, who ran Spy, and Duncan the Younger, as I say. Uh, of those, Jim was killed in the Army, Duncan was killed in the Air Force, and uh, John's only son was riding his bicycle out of Medbury School, he was pulled over by a car and killed at the age of 10. That was the end of the McAlpine males. My three brothers and I all served in the Army and the Air Force and we all came back virtually unharmed. This was the difference. What could happen? Then, <coughs> uh, in, in due course, uh, we were called up to uh, Levin and we spent some time there square bashing, that sort of thing, and then posted down to Tyre. Uh, to learn to fly on Tiger Moths. I got the stage where uh, my uh, instructor said, we'll do one more circuit and bump and then you can go solo. I was taking off and uh, another guy of, on the same course, uh, Len uh, Des Hanrahan, he was doing his first solo, and for some unknown reason, he came in downwind, and he crashed straight into us. He tore off our starboard wing, and he went straight into the ground and was killed outright. Uh, but we uh, spun down onto the top of a very big Macacapa hedge, and I think that's what saved our lives. Len was very, very severely injured and he was in hospital for a very long time, and I was completely unharmed. But I was called in to the chief flying instructor, uh, a Frenchman called Lett, who said, that'll be the end of your flying. I'm sorry, you would have lost your nerve. Uh, but luckily for me, I had a friend who was also an instructor at Tari, and uh, uh, Harry Wigley, uh, some of you will know who the Wigleys were, Mount Cook Airline, all that sort of thing. And so he went and pleaded with Lett uh, that I be allowed um, to fly, carry on flying. He would like to take me up and turn me inside out, as he put it. Um, and uh, Lett rather reluctantly agreed. However, we went up and then Harry came back and said he's perfectly all right and he can carry on. Unfortunately, the bit of delay meant that I then didn't leave for Canada to, to uh, fly Harvards uh, with the guys that I had gone into the bin and I'd already made some friends, but that was the way it had to be. Uh, spent a long time, of course, in Canada on Harvards. Um, and uh, Dave's already talked about them, so uh, nothing very special to say, except that when we arrived in Canada, we were uh, sent to an aerodrome at Medicine Hat. But it wasn't for fighter pilots, it was for bomber pilots, it was a typical RAF cock-up. <laughs> and uh, so we spent a while there, um, we had really nothing much to do except occasionally act as pallbearer for some guy who had crashed 
on there. And then, in due course, we were sent to the correct aerodrome at Moose Door. And there we did, we did our uh, full training. Um, just one quick comment there, there was the hospitality of the Canadians was absolutely amazing. There was a guy, he was just a manager of a, uh, one floor of a big store. And he and his wife, between them, had, had over 400 Australian and New Zealand guys staying with them, fed them, and <coughs> introducing them to their two lovely daughters. Um, <laughs> then, uh, with the training finished, uh, we set off from Halifax in a convoy uh, on the HMS Worcestershire, um, a big convoy, which had uh, three destroyers with it. About two days out from Halifax, we were attacked by U-boats, and uh, I can still see those merchant vessels going up in flames and sinking and so on, and probably a very big loss of life. But we were taken by a destroyer because uh, we were all fully trained pilots, so of some importance, and uh, taken up to Iceland and dumped there, where we spent several weeks. Very primitive conditions. We were in a partially built hospital. Uh, we had no beds, no, not even a squat on for the floor. We just slept on the floor itself. Uh, we hadn't very much to eat, but we became very adept at catching sheep. <laughs> and uh, uh, there were some hot springs in Iceland, rather like up at Hanma, that sort of thing. And there was quite a big um, lake very near to us. And we used to go down there and bathe in that, stark naked, um, and shave and so on. And we noticed that on the bank there was a building and occasionally we saw what looked like a female face looking out. Then we learned that there was going to be a dance in a hall somewhere in the area. So we went along that evening, fully dressed of course. <laughs> <laughs> we went in the front door and there were a lot of uh, young ladies sitting around. They got up and went out the back door immediately. I don't know why. Anyway, in due course, we were picked up by uh, uh, a disgusting Belgian liner, the Leopoldville, and taken to Britain, and uh, then uh, up to Scotland to OTU to learn to fly Spitfires. Um, that was more or less uneventful. Unfortunately, we had a lot of pole. Polish uh, pilots, and uh, I don't blame them, but I mean, they were dead keen, but they were also a bit sort of foolhardy, and we lost uh, no less than three of those Polish pilots killed themselves by crashing flying in Scotland. And then uh, uh, I flew in a Miles Master once or twice, and then was shown the cockpit of a Spitfire and said, off you go. And uh, we spent 
a reasonable time there, and then I was posted to 91 Squadron at Hawkins in Kent. Um, but I wasn't with them for very long before I was posted again to 129 Mysore Squadron at Tangmere. Um, they had lost a lot of pilots, and um, so some pilots from other squadrons had to be taken to fill gaps and so on. Um, 129 was a wonderful squadron, and I was on it for a very long time. And uh, whilst I was on it, I was commissioned. I, up until then, I'd been a sergeant pilot. And uh, uh, I uh, had been there about two and a half months, I think. And we were on a, a flight over France. Uh, and we got involved in a, a, a hectic dogfight. And uh, we were also uh, being bombarded by FLAC, the anti-aircraft fire coming up. Anyway, I realized that my aircraft had been hit, the engine packed up altogether, in fact. I was at a fair height, and I thought, well, I can see the see Britain clearly enough, and I think I can glide over and land uh, somewhere in the field there. But um, then the, the plane started to burn and it got pretty hot and I decided I couldn't possibly make Britain. So uh, by that time I was fairly low, not much over a thousand feet. Rather late to leave, leave it uh, to be sure that my parachute would open uh, and uh, stop my fall. However, all went well, I got out. The danger always was that you might get entangled uh, your parachute might get entangled with the tailplane or something like that, but it didn't. And I came down perfectly well, but uh, I wasn't uh, attached to the parachute for very long at all before I was in the water. I got my dinghy uh, inflated, and uh, you had a flagged wave and a whistle to blow. <laughs> um, the sea was very rough, and uh, it was dusk, just beginning to be uh, dark, and they had the Air Sea Rescue Patrols launches going along. They came out from Dover and they patrolled looking for people like us who'd come down and drink. And uh, they had taken with them uh, the uh, Dover Harbour Master just for a trip. Um, and uh, this was their, their last run before dark. And he saw my parachute, but they said, no, it'll be just a, a white horse. Um, but he was insistent, so finally to humor him, they came out and sure enough, they picked me up and uh, took me back. And <coughs> they filled me up with rum, and from that day, I've never been able to touch the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, that was all okay, and I started flying again. The losses were such that uh, suddenly I occasionally found myself leading a flight, and even on one or two occasions a squadron, still as a, as a pilot officer. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I'm losing myself slightly, so I have to glance down here. Um, yeah. Uh, we then got instructions to go up to the Orkney Islands, north of Scotland. And uh, it so happened that the signal came through, and at that stage I was the, the senior uh, pilot on the squadron. The squadron commander was on leave, I think, and so on and so on. And uh, the signal came uh, instructing me to uh, prepare to move um, the squadron to the Orkney Islands, which meant about 43 people. And uh, I had to have everything organized by four o'clock the following afternoon. <laughs> uh, it meant that we had to take our, we took our aircraft, of course, but we also took some extra aircraft we got in other pilots, and I was going to help out. And then uh, the ground crew all went by train. They had um, uh, a virtually all day in London before they moved on up uh, north. And uh, when we got there, I asked uh, my, some of my ground crew uh, next day, what did you do in London? And they said, oh, we went to see Gone with the Wind, <laughs> which the film which ran for four hours, roughly. And I said, and what did you do with the rest of the time? They said, oh, we saw Gone with the Wind again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got up to the Orkney Islands, and a horrible place. Bleak, virtually no trees, um, terribly windy. Um, our Nissen hut accommodation was buried half underground to prevent from being blown away. And uh, when we took off from the Spitfire, we had to have um, a guy on each wingtip and two on the tail until we taxied out to take off. Um, and um, soon after we got there, a group of Lysanders came and parked um, overnight. They were well and truly tied down, but next morning none of them were serviceable. They have been to bits. Um, the other thing that um, I disliked very much was the very, very brown water. Uh, you put your hand in the bath and it looked as if you had a wonderful suntan. And so I, I had a sample sent down south to be tested, and the result came back that it was heavily contaminated with animal or human excreta. <laughs> so from that time, I drank my whiskey neat. <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, a, a signal came to take half of, of the squadron up to the Shetland Islands. That was a different cup of tea altogether. Uh, treeless, but um, charming, and the people there were nice. What surprised me was, I thought, well, we, we went around the little troughs uh, getting eggs to supplement our rations, and sort of thing. everywhere we went, they knew about New Zealand. 
because Uncle So-and-so had been in the Merchant Navy and so on. I was very surprised at that. And uh, uh, I uh, always was on RAF squadrons, never on the 485 or 486, the New Zealand squadrons. And I liked that because we had a real mixture from all over the world, all over Europe anyway. Uh, we had Belgians, Dutch, Danes, um, Norwegians, uh, an Austrian, uh, Canadians, New, Ze New Zealanders of course, and Australians, and even one or two Poms. But those, it was interesting because of the people you met. We had one uh, great character, Signal came posting Flight Lieutenant Count Franz Colorado Mansfeld DFC to one to nine squadron. And I thought, Christ, what this is like? And I went to meet him off a train, and this tall guy got out and saluted and clicked his heels in a typical Prussian fashion. I thought, this is going to go down well with the boys, but he was the most... <laughs> He was the most charming fellow. We, we became very good friends, actually. And he said, after the war, you must come and stay on my estate in Austria, which Goering had taken over as a shooting lodge. Um, whilst we were up in the Shetland Islands, we, we went to uh, Scarpafo to... Um, where there were a lot of wrens. Uh, uh, some company, and uh, they used to supply us. We always seemed to have whiskey, and on one occasion they gave us a case of whiskey, and uh, we were heading back to the aerodrome, and we got completely lost. There was fog, and you didn't have any proper headlights. So they just had little slits past the headlights, so, and of course, no signposts, because the Germans would have seen where they were if it had come down. Um, and eventually, Collie said, just stop here and I will go and ask somebody. I'll find somebody. Well, he didn't come back. He didn't come back. And I had a couple more whiskeys. And then I thought, well, I'd better go and see if I can find him. And I heard something. And there he was in a ditch with his arm round a Shetland pony foal saying, you dear little thing, you. <laughs> <laughs> He was a lovely guy, he made uh, a very nice American and they had a son and then sadly Collie was killed and she had another son after he died, so I never got to Austria. Um, we were then uh, posted back south again uh, into Sussex and uh, not long afterwards I um, I think I've already mentioned I received my commission then, and um, uh, I was posted to uh, take command of B flight in 616 South Yorkshire Squadron. And uh, I flew with them for quite a long time. Uh, by that time I'd done two years and uh, I began to feel that I was perhaps a danger to my pilots because I found that I wasn't sleeping well and various indications that 
uh, I really needed a break from operations. Um, so that was agreed, and uh, I was sent uh, on a sort of rest from operations um, to instruct guys going on to Spitfires. It wasn't exactly a rest. Anyway, uh, I'd been there uh, quite not very long, and I had a 48-hour pass, and I thought, well, I'll fly down and uh, visit um, the, <clears throat> my friends in 616. And uh, that evening, uh, we went out on a, uh, looking for a pub that had some whiskey, because we had no whiskey in the officer's mess. And uh, we found a pub, but they'd run out of whiskey, and we decided we will go back to the mess. We were in a small convoy led by uh, a pilot driving a, a sports car with his wife next to him and in the back seat uh, a young guy and his girlfriend and sitting on the hood which was down uh, an Irish pilot uh, who had received the DFM only a couple of days before. Um, there was a very bright moon and uh, we were driving along and there were two very big trees of the moon shining through which made it appear that the road went straight on but it didn't, it went sharp left and uh, the uh, sports car crashed into a bank the young Irish pilot was thrown forward on, and hit his head on a tree and was killed and uh, both the women and the car were very, very badly injured. One I know was in hospital for over 18 months. Uh, the next was a car which crashed into the one in front and everybody in that was injured. And I was in a Jeep driven by Americans. Um, and. Uh, the, again, everybody in that was injured, except it seemed myself. And I had noticed in the moonlight not long before uh, that there was a farmhouse. And so I, once I'd had a look around and so on, I, I walked back to uh, use a telephone and call for an ambulance and assistance, uh, which, which I did. And then I started back again, but then suddenly collapsed into a ditch. It turned out I had a fractured femur. And <laughs> so that meant that I then spent five and a half months in hospital and recuperating, rehabilitating, and so on. Um, this all meant that I'd lost um, rank. I was, by that time, an acting squadron leader, and I lost rank. Anyway, uh, in due course, I was posted to uh, Red Hill to fly Mustangs and then take over Mustang Squadron. And I didn't like the Mustangs at all. I loved the Spitz and everything you've ever heard about them was true. They were, were like, as somebody put it, a sort of second skin and they were just marvelous aircraft to fly. So, uh, luckily, I had a, f uh, a friend who had been my CO in 129 Squadron. Uh, he was, was, had 
come off flying and he was at air ministry. And I got on the phone to him and asked if he could possibly uh, arrange for me to get back onto a Spitfire squadron. And the result was I was posted to take command of B flight in number one squadron, which was down in, in um, Cornwall, that says at Padanic. This was four days before D-Day. And I really had hardly had a chance to get to know my pilots. But anyway, uh, as you probably know, D-Day was delayed for one day. The weather was totally unsuitable for the invasion. The fleet, of course, was all uh, formed up together and ready to go. And uh, then Eisenhower had the awful, awful job of deciding whether or not it should take place the next day or be cancelled. And he made the decision to go ahead. Uh, unfortunately, the charred base was very low, so that limited um, our flying. Uh, and what we had to do uh, really was to uh, uh, attack uh, locomotives and um, anything that moved on the roads because there was no petrol for the French of course so you could be perfectly certain that a, a lorry or anything of that nature was travelling along the road that they, they were Germans. Uh, we managed to destroy several locomotives and uh, we shot up quite a lot of stuff but that was our role. But the wonderful thing about this was that our uh, officer's mess was a, a hotel a high up, on, right on the coast. And for all of that day after the postponement, we had a wonderful view of this incredible fleet of hundreds of ships of all sizes. It was just amazing. We never ever see anything like it again. Um, not long afterwards, I did something which was rather naughty. I landed with um, my number two on a, a, an airstrip that had been laid down, some of tracking uh, by the Americans. And uh, I did that deliberately to become the first RF pilot to land in France since four years and 32 days before <laughs> when the last of the fighter aircraft uh, evacuated from France. We didn't stay there long because there were snipers in the trees and, and it was all pretty dangerous. Um, I don't know whether uh, many of you know that with a Spitfire, apart from the cannon and the four machine guns, we could also carry a bomb. Uh, we didn't didn't do very frequent bombing, but we did on quite a few occasions. And uh, um, another guy and I were lucky enough to set a, a dairy submarine on fire, which was in Dry Dock in Cherbourg. Uh, you, the, uh, it was very primitive bombing because the only way that you could, you didn't have any uh, bomb site or anything like that. Uh, you just pointed 
your aircraft at the target. <laughs> so we were quite pleased with that. Um, then, uh, not all that long after that, we were posted to uh, attack the flying bombs, the V-1s, which were creating havoc, of course, and uh, killing a uh, vast number of people. They were aimed at London, and our uh, job was to, at all costs, prevent them from getting to London. We took over the, the anti-aircraft uh, fire on the coast. There was a patrol of our planes at sea, then the anti-aircraft, then us um, again, and then, of course, there was the balloon barrage around uh, London itself. Um, we were fairly successful, and uh, the thing was, at all costs, they must not get to London. Uh, but eventually we had a deputation from with the mayor of Maidstone uh, and some of the councillors saying, please, could we stop shooting them down over Maidstone because the people were <laughs> <laughs> So uh, uh, that was... Uh, an interesting thing, but uh, and then of course, as you all know, the V2s came, the rockets, and there was nothing you could do about that because they went straight up to the vast <coughs> height and straight down, and they couldn't even sound the air raid warnings or anything like that. Um, I think I more or less finished. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything much else that's worth talking about, but. Um, uh, just a quick glance here. Oh, yeah. Um, at one stage, um, I had taken uh, nine aircraft to Brussels, and uh, we what we did, we, we had landing strips by then in Belgium and Holland, and uh, we would... Uh, from there, we weren't getting very much in the way of opposition from the Luftwaffe by then, and uh, then we would take the aircraft back to Britain for a proper servicing and maybe to change one or two of the pilots. Anyway, uh, we were coming back from uh, Brussels, and we found that every aerodrome in the south of England was under fog, and. Uh, Eventually, I was told uh, to go to Manston, where they had Fido. I don't know whether you, any of you know anything about it. But what it was, really, was uh, on either side of, of, the, of the runway in Manston, there were these pipes, perforated pipes, and under pressure, I don't know whether it was kerosene or paraffin or what it was, uh, burnt. And that showed you... Uh, where the runway was. Um, as was customary in those things, I leading, uh, had to wait until my fellow pilots were on the ground. My petrol gauge was showing empty. <laughs> and uh, Anyway, they all got down, just one went off the runway into very soft ground and tipped up on his nose. 
Um, and then it came my turn to come down, and I landed on the, the, the strip, and my engine cut out. <laughs> no petrol. <laughs> so that was a pretty lucky escape, I think. Now, there was criticism of uh, this Fido uh, in the uh, Brevet Club newsletter. Somebody wrote and said that it was a complete waste of money. But in that case, anyway, I knew that it, it saved nine Spitfires and probably a large number of pilots because all we could have done otherwise, we couldn't obviously expect to land and hope that you weren't on top of somebody's house or something like that. We just had to fly out to sea and ditch in the dark. So um, there was a, 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 an apology printed in the Revac Club. <laughs> when I written in and said that it, it certainly did uh, have some value. Um, a little thing I forgot to mention was that um, before I talked about this episode with the air, uh, this convoy of cars and so on, um, we'd had posted to our squadrons um, American pilots who were destined to become squadron commanders or something like that to get some operational experience with us. Uh, hence, I came to be in this Jeep when we crashed like that. But I must say that the, and I'm perhaps a bit, a bit unfortunate to say this, the American uh, navigation was pretty lousy. We were escorting um, their bombers and uh, they would rendezvous at the wrong place at the wrong height at the wrong time, and it was dreadful. <laughs> However, uh, that's as it was. Um, then uh, came uh, VE Day, and uh, I was on leave actually in London, <coughs> and then um, some weeks later, um, I was on a vessel coming back to New Zealand and uh, I uh, had been told that um, I was to take, uh, have leave. I then had um, just on four and a half years flying. I did 800 operational flights and uh, I was to then uh, take a, a squadron up to the Far East. But very fortunately for me, the bomb was dropped, and that, because I rather dreaded going up there. I think that's about all I can tell you, but we were a lucky family. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>